in your heart today? Oh, let's give him praise, somebody. Give him praise in this house. Hallelujah. Oh, let this choir know you've been blessed by their ministry as they leave today. Wow. Wonderful music. Wonderful music. God bless you as you're seated today. A thousand and one memories are flooding my mind right now as I stand in this pulpit. And I look back over the times that Paula and I have had to enjoy our time of ministry here in revivals and special services. And my heart is just full today when I recollect all the wonderful things that I've seen happen in this room. Some of the most dynamic, powerful moves of the Holy Spirit I've ever experienced in my life have happened in this sanctuary. But the better news is the God I serve is not a God of the past. He is very much alive in my present, and he is very much alive in my tomorrow. It's wonderful to be back in Pulaski. Thank you, Pastor Gore, for the wonderful invitation that you've extended to Paul and myself to be here today. And I look across this audience, and I see people that through the years have prayed for us. You have lifted us up before the Lord as Paul and I have traveled throughout this country and around the world. It's good to see the Weavers back here. My goodness, Donnie and Clarice Weaver, such dear friends, preach for them in various places, and I so appreciate them. Can I tell you that God has gifted you with a wonderful pastor and his wife and family that love you and love the work of the Lord? And when I saw Brother Travis Gore standing here a few moments ago, my, my heart, again, was just full of gratitude for what I've seen God do in this brother and his family and how God is using them. Now, he told that story about my brief counseling session with him. I don't really remember it that way. First of all, I, uh, I thought it was at a McDonald's, not a Taco Bell. But I, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you that one. And I don't remember saying, trust God. I thought I said, be careful. I mean, that was it. I, that was it. I've never been known as, as one to give much counseling or advice, but I, I think I did all right that day. Whatever I said seemed to work pretty well for you. Amen. Well, now, you are one more incredible praise and worship leader, brother. I, I think we just... We just need to buy a bus, and me and you just need to go on the road all the time. That's what we need to do. And I didn't come here to stand over here and watch you play this. I came to play it myself. Amen. So don't go too far, because when I get through, you will be back up here. <laughs> now, is it all right if I go a little old school on you today? know why, but uh, I've got an old song that's just been on my mind a whole lot. And it goes like this, I'm on the battlefield for my Lord.
That's been on my mind. Something happened to me on, a, on an airplane here a while back. Now, you don't want too much happening to you on an airplane. I mean, you get on an airplane, you just want to sit down and get where you're going without any incident. But I was sitting there, and I had my tray down in front of me. I had a Diet Coke on the right, a little pack of 60-calorie pretzels on the left, and my Bible right in the middle. And a drunk man sitting beside me right here. Now, if you ever want to start or stop a conversation on an airplane, just get your Bible out. It'll do either one. It'll start one or it can stop one. And so I got my Bible out, and uh, I was reading in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 19 and 20, where it, where it talks about King Jehoshaphat. Chapter 19 is given to his success. Chapter 20 is given to his difficulty and his problem. When three kingdoms came against him at one time. Now, it's tough when you've got one enemy, but when you've got three coming against you at one time, that's, that's extremely difficult. And that 20th chapter is so interesting to me. The first two verses talk about the problem. The next 10 verses describe the prayer that he prayed. Now, what that says to me is that we need to pray five times more than we worry. Do the math. It works out. Two verses to the problem, ten verses to the prayer. He prayed five times more than he worried. I like that. But at the end of his prayer, a little preacher that I'd never heard of before, little Mr. Preacher, nobody from nowhere with nothing, his name was Jehaziel. He stood up and he said, King, I've heard from the Lord, and I need to tell you what the Lord said. That's such an, interesting, such an interesting chapter there because when you read that carefully, you will discover that Jehaziel came from four generations of preachers that go all the way back to Asaph in the book of Psalms who was a worshiper. Oh, I could preach on this right now. And he stood on the shoulders of heritage, not just history, but heritage. A heritage of faith, a heritage of worship, a heritage of prayer and Jehaziel said here's what God wants you to know king you've got to suit up for the battle put your armor on and here's where you're going to find the enemy and he told them where they would be and then he said this when you get there understand the battle isn't yours the battle is the Lord's you've got to go there and confront it you've got to dress up for it but the battle has already been won before the first shot is fired. And here's what got me. I'm 33,000 feet in the air, Sister B, and, and this drunk man's over here. He's wanting to engage in a, in a conversation with me. And all of a sudden, something hit me when I read that part about how he had to go into the valley, face the enemy, but the battle was the Lord's. Basically, it was won before he got there. The Lord spoke to my heart and said, Here it is, son. You may have to face it, but you don't have to fight it. Now, after that, I lost it. I don't, I don't really know what happened. When I came to myself, I had spilt my diet coat. My pretzels were all over the guy's arm sitting beside me, and he was brushing off his sleeve. And he looked at me, and he said, Are you from a foreign country? So I took from that I had been speaking in tongues. But when I got to thinking about the fact that I may have to face some things, but I don't have to fight those things. Oh, 
The battle is the Lord's. You may have to face the courtroom, but Jesus is the lawyer. And you may have to face the sick room, but Jesus is the great physician. I wish somebody would stand up and help me sing this old school song one more time because I like what it says. I'm on the battlefield for my somebody and say you may have to face it but you don't have to fight it tell them that tell them now turn to somebody on the other side before you sit down and say part two to that is this don't break down before you break through tell them don't break down before you break through oh my goodness I can't come to Pulaski and not sing at least a chorus of this song because I finished this song right here on this stage. Back in 19, what was it, 1982, 81, Paula, somewhere back in there? I had, uh, I had started writing this song in a revival over at Radford and had not finished it until we came here. And I was over here one afternoon getting ready for the service, just... Uh, praying and singing and getting ready in my heart and the rest of this song came to me and it went like this in the midst of it all
the house. Hallelujah. Well, praise God. He's faithful, isn't he? I remember one time years ago, I was in a service and people got to testifying and everybody got excited, got all beside themselves. They got to testifying more out of exuberance than uh, really understanding what all they were saying. And one person stood up and said, I tell you what, you can count on God. Everybody said, yes, you can count on God. He said, I've learned that you can count on God nine times out of ten. Well, I got news for him. You can count on him every time. I may just have church here before I leave. He's faithful. Just a minute, I'm going to talk about something that really is in my spirit today from Philippians chapter 3. Before I do that, I need to take an opportunity just to use two very, very important words. Those words are thank you. In behalf of missionaries around this world, some 630 of them, preaching in every time zone that you can imagine, telling people about the love of Jesus in over 180 countries, 183 to be exact, I want to thank you for praying for them. In behalf of all of our Bible schools, our seminaries, our children's homes and orphanages, thank you for praying for them, giving to support missions, sponsoring them. On behalf of some 32, 33,000 pastors, pastoring in all of those churches around the world, thank you for lifting them up. Most importantly, thank you for standing by world missions, seeing souls saved, born into the kingdom of God, to the point that in the year 1314, 1.8 million people gave their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and Church of God altars around this world. Isn't that incredible? Thank you. Last year alone, 4,380 churches were planted around this world in one year's time. That's one new church every two hours of every day. That is incredible. Thank you. Pastor Gore, this church right here in Pulaski, Virginia, in the last 10 years gave over a quarter million dollars to Church of God World Missions. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you. So good to have my wife Paula with me. Paula, would you just stand one more time and wave at everybody? This, this is my wife of 30, almost 37 years. So good to have her traveling with me today. There are people here from Danville, Virginia, a dear prayer partner of ours, an intercessor. Penny Barty is here somewhere, I've been told. Penny, we're glad that you're here. When this service is over, I will tell you about some things that Paul and I brought with us that we pour back into world missions, books and CDs, different ministry resources. I won't do that now. I'll save that to later, but we do have things that we want to invest in your life. Recently, the Lord has been speaking to me about the seedbed of revival. What really starts it? What really 
inaugurates revival in a family, in a church, in an individual. I could use that well-worn scripture, 2 Chronicles 7 and 14, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and you know the rest of it. I could use that one today. And that is certainly a good foundational verse to talk about revival. But for me this morning, when I talk about the inception of revival, the seedbed of revival, I have to go back to what Paul says here in Philippians 3 and 10. Because this verse of Scripture that I'm about to quote for you validates and verifies in my spirit what I believe God is saying, at least to me, about my walk with Him and my relationship with Him the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. The Lord has been saying to me recently that as far as He's concerned, his walk with me and his relationship with me is more about my desire for him than it is my need for him. Oh, I've always needed him and I will always need him. He said in his word, without me you can do nothing. David said, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. But David also said, I desire him more than my necessary food. Lately, I've been preaching about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. They existed on three diets during that time. And I'll talk about this some other time when I come back, but they they existed on the diet of bondage in the land of Egypt. Garlic and onion in the flesh pots of Egypt. It had an odor about it, but it got them through Egypt. Then through the wilderness, they existed on the diet of transition, this thing called manna. Manna. But one day past the Passover, when they got into the promised land, God changed their diet again and gave them the diet of breakthrough. Because they begin to feast on the milk and the honey and the fruit that was so large that two men couldn't carry one cluster of grapes between their shoulders and they ate the old corn and the parched corn and the produce of the land of promise. So God brought them from the diet of bondage through the diet of transition and then to the diet of breakthrough. And the diet of breakthrough verified for them that in the future, our communion with God, their communion with God, was going to be more about their desire for God. Because with manna, he proved to them, yes, I'm the God of your belly. Oh, I feel like preaching here today. Yes, I can be the God of your stomach. Yes, I can be the God that feeds you your bread and gets you through with survival food, but in the promised land... I'm going to prove to you that I'm not just the God of your stomach, I'm the God of your spirit. And it's about desire, and deep calleth unto deep. They that draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh unto them. So when I think about the inception of revival and how do I encounter revival, it comes down to how do I encounter God. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him. 
The word know there is encounter him. To experience him. It's not enough to be merely acquainted with God. It's not enough for me to know him at an arm's length distance and someone sing me a song about him or tell me a story about him. I want to intimately know God. It's been too long since I've been here. That I may know him. When I was over here in Danville, Virginia, More than one Sunday, I drove away from that church asking myself the question, Pastor, what just happened in there? What just happened in that sanctuary? And I look back on my week of preparation, and I look back on my 30 or 40 minutes of preaching and the resulting altar service, and while I rejoiced in what seemed to be the surface of what God had done and the visible things that God had done, I still would drive away asking myself, what just happened in that church? What did I give myself to in study and prayer this week? What did I give myself to in the last 30 or 40 minutes of preaching? What did that altar service accomplish? What just happened? And I would begin to go through a list of possible and potential answers one of the things that I would ask myself was this, did I only give myself to helping someone manage sin for another week? Have I only given myself today to sin management and helping someone keep the devil at bay for seven more days so they can get back here next Sunday and we can go through it all again and just do it seven days at a time? And that lended itself to me being a frustrated pastor. Because, Brother Weaver, if all I was giving myself to was helping my congregation involve themselves in sin management, that wasn't enough for me. That really came to light one day when a young man came to my office. And he came from a great family, a faithful family in that church, but I'd watched his life, and he had been up and down and in and out, and a lot of spiritual frustrations that he had encountered. And he came into my office one day, and he said, Pastor, I think I have finally figured out my problem, and I was so glad to hear him say that because I thought I'd figured it out long before he had. And he looked at me, and he said, My problem is this. I've always been real consistent at being inconsistent. And I said, you've nailed it right there. You've not only nailed it for yourself, but probably you've nailed it for me at times and for most of this congregation. And when we don't have that divine encounter with God, we live this frustrated life of inconsistency. Up one day and down the next and in and out in our walk with God and our relationship with God. But that is not what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3 and 10. When he says that I may know him, he's not talking about managing sin. He's talking about the transformed life. He's not talking about just 
wearing righteousness and wearing Christianity like a garment and you put it on and you take it off. But he's talking about an encounter and an expression and an experience where he can truly say old things have passed away and behold all things have become new and now I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's not enough for me to get just a little dose of do better on Sunday morning when the choir sings. It's not enough for those little goosebumps to get on me when the preacher preaches. I want to have an encounter. I want to have an experience that eradicates sin in my heart and, and, and keeps temptation where it needs to be. And, and, and I'm not challenged by those things like an inexperienced Christian or a, or a new believer. I want to come to a place where I can honestly say I have encountered God and the encounter has brought me to this place where old is old and new is new. Lean over and tell somebody he's already preaching better than any of us are shouting this morning. Paul said that I may know him. How do you want to know him, Paul? I want to know him in the epitome of the expression. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. But you can swing that pendulum to the far other end. Paul said, I even want to know him in the fellowship, the koinonia, the brotherhood of suffering. If tears are involved, if sickness is involved, if pain is involved, I still want to know him there and all points in between. That I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. I'm living for the day. When the trump of God sounds and the dead in Christ rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be called up together to meet the Lord in the clouds of glory and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul says that's what I'm living for. When that moment comes, I want to be in that crowd right there that when the trumpet blows and the, and the sound comes forth, I want to be in the crowd that is resurrected. I want to attain that. I'm not looking for any other status. I'm not looking for any other position. I'm not looking for any other title. I'm just living to get up on resurrection day. Then he goes on further and he says, not that I've already attained that. Not that I have already achieved that. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not there. I haven't arrived. But he said, I follow after. I pursue God. I pursue deity. One place he said, I follow after him that happily I may find him. I'm not there yet, but I pursue it. I'm working on it. But he said, I can tell you one thing. I've come to a point in my life when I've made some resolutions. I've come to a point in my life I've made some strong conclusions, and here they are. This one thing I do. Forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before, I press toward the mark. The prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is talking about here is not managing your sins, but living a transformed life. He's not talking about image management. He's talking about transformed living. 
He's not talking about you just brushing up what other people think you are and what other people see in you. He's talking about you coming to a place where you've had that point and that moment of transformation when Jesus Christ has made a radical change in your life and what you used to want, you don't want anymore. And the desires that used to possess you, they don't possess you anymore. But you have given yourself totally to knowing Jesus Christ. About to lose what little dignity I brought with me from Cleveland last night. Paul says there's three things that I'm going to employ in my life that will help me accomplish all of this. He said, first of all, I'm going to live by the principle of concentration. You see it there when he says this one thing I do. Not two things, not five things, not 28 things. I'm giving myself to one thing. I want to please the Lord. Can I tell you this morning that you can knock yourself out, wear yourself down, drive yourself crazy trying to please everybody else. But if you haven't pleased Jesus, it doesn't matter who you did please in this life. And the real truth is if you please Jesus, it doesn't matter who is displeased in this life as long as you can hear him say, well done, my good and my faithful servant. Paul said, I'm living by the principle of focus, the principle of concentration. I must please Jesus and give myself to him. Years ago, I walked into my office one day and instantly became overwhelmed with a sense of duty and responsibility of all that was before me. The right hand corner of my office I had radio equipment where we did a daily radio program down the hallway I had a little makeshift television studio where we did a little cable television program every week in Danville I had people waiting to see me building construction workers were outside my window putting up a new building I had a board meeting that night I had a place to go preach the next day I had a staff meeting, had all this stuff going on, and I walked into my office at 8.30 in the morning and noticed that my secretary had already put a stack of pink slips of paper on the corner of my desk that represented phone calls I needed to return, and they had accumulated in the first 30 minutes of the day, and that was just a signal of what else would happen before the day was over. And I was overwhelmed with exhaustion, and I had just gotten there. I was overwhelmed with a sense of burden and responsibility. And I remember I stood in the doorway of that office in that church, and I, I couldn't even move forward. I just stood there in the passageway. I lifted up my eyes, and I said, oh, Lord, if you'll help me get to my desk, I'm going to ask you something when I get over there. And I shuffled over to my desk, and I fell back in my chair, and I said, Lord, the question that I have for you today is of all the things that I've got to do, of all the things that I'm doing, what did you tell me to do? Because, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that all of our good things are not necessarily God things. And in an instant, the Holy Spirit impressed upon my heart. He said, Son, I only told you to do one thing, one thing. I reached for a pen and I got a piece of paper because I wanted to write that one thing down. I, I had every intention of telling my board I was going to put the paper in front of the faces of my board that, that night and say this is the one thing God told me to do. And I was ready to write down TV ministry, radio outreach, build that new building, whatever the one thing was. But suddenly here's what he said. The one thing I told you to do was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and leave all the rest of this stuff to me. I want to tell you brothers and sisters 
sisters, we are at a place in our life where we've got to come down to one thing, and that one thing is loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these things will be added unto you. David put it this way. He said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after all the days of my life, that I may dwell in his tabernacles forever. It comes down to one thing. It's the principle of focus, the principle of concentration. Well, i got to preach right there just a minute. I was reading the other day in the book of Revelation where Jesus spoke to the churches of Asia Minor. He began with the church of Ephesus, ended with the church of Laodicea. In the church at Ephesus, he said, you're doing so many good things, so many good things. And he listed them. But then he said, there's one thing that I have against you. Now listen, you don't want God to have any one thing against you. Because it nullifies all the good things. He said, of your own free will, your choice, your own volition, you have left your first love. Talking about revival here today. Understand what he said and what he did not say. He did not say, you don't love me at all. What he said was, you don't love me like you used to. I'm not number one anymore. Oh, you still love me? You still have a remembrance of me? You still have a place for me? But I'm not in first place. And can I tell you, if world missions needs a revival, if the church of God needs a revival, it's right here. We've got to come back to a place where Jesus Christ is priority, where he has the preeminence, where he is number one in all that we say and all that we do. It's the principle of concentration. But then Paul says something else. If I'm going to live the transformed life, I've got to live by the principle of cancellation. He said, this one thing I do, listen, forgetting the things which are behind. Forgetting the things which are behind. That's the principle of cancellation. Now, Paul had much to boast about. You know what all of those things were, his education, his travels, his priority, his prominence, but he said, I put it behind me because when I compare that to who Jesus is, it's nothing but waste to be thrown out in the city dump. That's all it is. A lot of good things. Got a lot of bad things to put behind him. He could moan about spending a night and a day in the deep. He could cry about being snake bitten and beaten with rods and having men he thought were his brothers in ministry falsely accuse him. But he said, instead of dwelling on that, I choose to put into practice the principle of cancellation and put my successes and certainly put my hurts behind me and not let anything stand between me and my walk with God. It's the principle of cancellation. Now here we are in a brand new year. 2016. Going in almost to our third month of it, ending our second month of a new year, 2016. And I dare say that in a crowd like this on a Sunday morning, moving into this new year, there are possibly at least some people still dragging into 2016 something you should have left in 2015. 2014. 1997. 1982. 
We've got all this baggage, stuff, that for no particular reason we just keep hauling with us everywhere we go, the hurts, the bitterness, the wounds, the words, when what we must do is just simply cancel those things. Now, I have made a decision to use this pulpit this morning in the Pulaski Church of God to make an open public confession. A pastor sweating bullets over here. Everybody just decided they'd stay for the next 10 minutes to hear what I've got to say. And everybody's sitting on the front of their seats because when a preacher starts confessing, it gets everybody's attention. And I'm going to do that right here and right now. Some years ago, when I was serving on the executive committee, someone over me in the Lord called me into his office one day. And he said, I need you to go here and do this. Now, what he asked me to do was not wrong. It certainly wasn't sinful, but it was hard. And I didn't want any part of it. Didn't want anything to do with it. And as politely as I knew... And as courteously as I knew, I told him so. I said, I, I, don't want, I don't want this assignment. Now, when you're on the executive committee, you work by what is called portfolios. And what that means is that every member of the executive committee has a certain portfolio of responsibility, and they, they work within that portfolio, and you typically don't cross into someone else's portfolio. And what he asked me to do was not in my responsibility list. It was not in, in, in my portfolio, and I reminded him of that. But he said, yeah, but you've got, the, you've got the drive, and you've got the personality. You can get this done, and it needs to get done. I said, you're over me in the Lord, I'm going to do it. But I don't want to do it. And politely and with all the courtesy and respect due to your office and to you as an individual, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. And I turned around and I walked out of his office, and here's my confession. I was mad. I was sad and I was bad. I was everything that rhymed with sad and mad and bad except glad. The next morning, I got up at 4.30, pushed myself out of my house to go to Chattanooga and catch a little commuter flight all the way to Atlanta, and it's not getting any better. I've thought about it all night long. I'm still mad. I'm still upset. I'm angry that my leader has asked me to go and do something that someone else should have done. I didn't want any part of it, and I'm steaming. I'm fussing. I'm, I'm carrying on. Nobody in the car but me on the way to the airport. I'm just talking this stuff to myself. I catch that flight, I get to Atlanta so I can catch another flight to another faraway place, and it's turning into a bad spirit. I'm angry at my leader. I'm angry at those that I thought should have been doing this besides me. I'm angry at the whole circumstance. And I'm saying to myself, something has got to make me feel better. Something's got to change this. And I said, Lord, help me. Something's got to, to pull me out of this. And about that time, I, I walked by a food court in that airport. And I said, that's it right there. A little food always helps me. And so I went through this line of this food court, and I got the world's sorriest breakfast I ever tried to eat in my life. I got the nastiest bowl of cornflakes I ever tried to consume. I mean, it's like somebody had poured water on paper. I didn't know what I was trying to eat, but it was not good, and it certainly couldn't have been healthy. 
And along with that, I had, I had selected the world's worst biscuit I ever tried to eat in my life. Now, you're looking at a man who considers himself to be a connoisseur of fine biscuits. I love a good biscuit. Cracker Barrel has a good biscuit. Bojangles has a good biscuit. Mama always made a good biscuit. I, love, I can see one now floating through the air. Melted butters just dripping all over the thing. I can visualize. I can almost reach out and touch it and taste it. But that morning in that airport, I got the world's hardest biscuit. It didn't flake. It didn't crumble. It was burnt on the bottom. And I'm sitting there trying to eat it, and I'm afraid to bite into it, fear of breaking a tooth. And so I, I looked at it. I held it in my hand, and I looked at it. And I started talking to it. You ever talk to a biscuit? No, you've never done that. But Brother Weaver, I transferred every other member of the executive committee into that biscuit. And I called them by name one at a time. I said, mm, you should have done this, and I baptized him in 2% milk. I brought him out, and I put another name on it. I said, you're Mr. Suave and Debonair. You never have a hair out of place. You don't even sweat when you preach, and I baptized him. Put another name on it. I said, you're Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky Jolly. They laugh when you walk in. They're laughing when you walk out. You can do no wrong. You could have done it, and I baptized him. One at a time, I baptized the other four members of the Church of God Executive Committee, including the general overseer. And it's getting worse. And about that time, in the middle of my mad fit, I heard somebody singing. Now, the room is full. That, that, that food court is full of business people trying to make connections and, and get to their plane. And, and above all the chatter and the noise and the loudness, I heard somebody singing. And here's what they were singing. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? His eyes on a sparrow, and I know he watches me. And I stepped back. I said, what fool is singing like that this morning? And I followed the sound of that voice, and I found an old man on the other side of that food court, and he had a dish rag in his hand. And he was bussing off the table, cleaning up somebody's mess so somebody else could sit down and make another one. And he would do that all day long, and he had done it all morning long before I even got there. And the Lord started dealing with me. He said, you might want to think about how you feel. He said, that old man over there got up a lot earlier than you did to come down here and go through the security process just to make ends meet for he and his little wife somewhere, and he's got the joy of the Holy Ghost in his life. And I heard the Lord speak to my heart, and he said, why don't you just be glad that I called you into my service today? What you were asked to do isn't wrong. It's not a sin. Yeah, it's hard, but you can get it done. Go do it and do it with joy. And I felt about that high. I, I grabbed my roller bag, and I said, you're right, Lord, I'm sorry. And when I get back, I'm going to apologize to the general overseer and all the other brothers on the committee. I, I should have never felt this way. And I grabbed my bag, and I'm on my way down to gate 18. When the Holy Ghost stops me in my tracks, he says, I'm not through with you. I said, you're not? He said, no. He said, what you need to do now is go back into that food court and find that old man that helped you with that song. 
And on your way to him, reach into your pocket and pull out the first bill your hands come to and give it to him as a love offering for blessing you. Now listen, I already knew what I had in my pocket. I had a $100 bill, a $20 bill, and a $5 bill. And the whole time I'm reaching in my pocket, I'm saying, come on, five, come on, five. <laughs> I pulled it out. It wasn't the five. It wasn't the 20. It was the $100 bill. I stormed across that food court. I said, hold your hand out, buddy. He did, and I slapped it in his hand. He said, watch that, brother. I said, don't ask. I grabbed my bag, and all the way down to gate 18, I promised I could still hear him sing. I sing because I'm happy. He ought to have been happy. He had $100 out of my pocket, but I tell you what he helped me do. He helped me cancel a bad attitude and a bad spirit, and I came by Pulaski, Virginia one more time to help somebody cancel something. I don't know what kind of hell you've been through, I don't know what somebody said to you. I don't know what somebody did to you. But I came by to tell you to cancel it and put it beneath the shed blood of Jesus Christ and get your harp out of the willow tree and don't let anything or anybody steal your song anymore. Somebody praise him in this house. Pardon me while I shout. I just preached myself happy right there. Somebody just needs to cancel it and regain your joy in the Holy Ghost because the joy of the Lord is still your strength. Hallelujah. I'm getting older, but I still got a little bit of it. Amen. It's to transform life. Now, y'all know if I get down here, I'm good for 20 more minutes. Y'all know that? Oh, I just heard somebody way back there say, keep them on the stage, Jesus. Keep them on the stage. I heard that all the way up here. No, I won't do that. It's to transform life. It's not the frustration of sin management. It's not this frustration of this up and down, in and out, managing my image. It's the transformation of knowing Jesus. And you live it by the principle of concentration, cancellation. But here's the last one. You live it by the principle of continuation. Paul said this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, I press toward. It's a forward-moving state of being. may not be making great strides, but I'm moving forward. I'm certainly not retreating. I'm moving forward. I'm at a place in my life where I'm just recollecting and remembering some of the things that others have imparted into me. And, and, and one of the things that I live by daily was imparted to me by my own father when he said to me one day, 
You can be impressive by how you start, but you'll be remembered by how you finish. And I'm consumed with the idea of finishing strong and finishing well. I remember when I was seven years old, the first public performance of me singing that I ever recollect happened at a Texas camp meeting in front of about 800 people. I was seven years old. I didn't go there to sing that night. I, I was sitting between my mom and my dad near the back, and someone on the stage had heard that I had started singing in my, in my dad's little church. And they, they, wanted, they wanted this little fat, freckle-faced, red-headed boy to come up there and just kind of do his thing in front of 800 people. And so they sent someone all the way back, and they, they, they plucked me up from between my mom and dad, all but dragged me to the stage, pulled a piano bench from beneath the piano, lifted me up, stood me on top of it, put a microphone in front of my face bigger than my hand and said, Sing, son! There's 800 people there. I'm this little fat, freckle-faced, red-headed kid with 800 people. Microphone in front of me bigger than my head. And the only thing I knew to start singing was what I'd been hearing other people sing. Pretty popular song back in that day. And I'm seven years old, so I just started mimicking what I heard someone else sing, and it was this. I started out traveling for the Lord many years ago. I was seven years old. I hadn't been down the street much. But I went on to the next line. I've had a lot of heartache, met a lot of grief and woe. Now, the only woe I'd honestly experienced is what Mama had put on my backside. But brother, I just kept on singing. I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. I hadn't had a journey at seven. But I've had one of the last 49 since that night. I've had a journey just like all of you have. And I can tell you right now, I have found him to be faithful. And there's something in me that says I'm too far from where I started and I'm too close to where I'm going to stop now. I'm about to run that aisle right there. Y'all still do that around here? Because I'm fixing to. I'm, I'm, fixing to, I'm fixing to reactivate it if you don't do it. I'm fixing to start it again. I talk about that song I finished when I was here years ago. Back in that day, I was just starting to write songs on a pretty regular basis and wrote songs, I guess, for most of the next 10 or 15 years. But about, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, my, my songwriting just kind of quit. I, I, I just don't do that anymore. I've, I've given myself to other responsibilities and other things, and I, I don't write much anymore. But here the other day, I was riding along, and I'm telling you, inspiration hit me for a song. And I'm just riding along in my car. I got to thinking about the goodness of the Lord. I got to, I got to singing a song. 
And I couldn't remember anybody else singing it before, so I just assumed I'd written it. I claimed it anyway. And I tell you what, the more I sang it, the more I liked it. I really believe that it's, it, it, it has the potential to be my best one ever. I mean, I can almost see it on the screen now. And I can see congregations singing it. I can hear praise teams singing it. I believe it's going to be a, it's going to be a big song. Want to hear it? goes like this. I got, I got to think about this journey. I got, I got to think about going on and finishing this race and how we just need to, to keep our faith in God. And I just driving along there, and I started singing. I started singing this verse. Hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. How you like it so far? Hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's going to be a song, isn't it? You think you can play that? Come up here. Come up here. Because I got a second verse. Find me a key. It don't matter. Find me one. Just pick one. Kind of sound like Amazing Grace, so we might want to go to A flat. Mm-hmm. Want to hear the second verse? I've come too far to turn back now. I've come too far. Turn back now. I've come too far. Hold on. Got a third verse. Want to hear it? He will come through. He will come through. He will come through. Hold on. You heard it before? I said he will come through. My God, I feel the Holy Ghost here now. He will come through, Brother Fox. He will come through. Hold on. I sent that to Bill Gaither. He sent it back, said, you've got to be kidding I said, no, Bill, I ain't kidding. But he said, there's a more legitimate song than that. And I said, oh, you're right. And it goes, through it all. Through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. And I've learned to trust in God. Stand and sing it with me one time. Through it all. Through it all. Oh, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned 
Trust in God, raise your hands and sing through it all. Oh, through it all. <laughs> I love that verse that said, I thank God for the mountains, and I thank Him for the valleys, and I thank Him for the storms He's brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them, and I wouldn't know what faith in His Word could do. Help me sing the chorus again, somebody. And through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Oh, through it all, through it all, I have learned to depend. The beginning of the revival that you want and you need is in knowing Jesus, encountering, experiencing Christ. I'll tell you what I want to do. I know it's getting late. But I want to ask everybody in this house to just come stand with me right here. I want to pray corporately with you. Just come on. Come on. I just